Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, it is the fastest growing social media platform in terms of popularity, home to viral videos of all sorts. But TikTok is wholly owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance. And new research shows that Canadians have conflicted feelings about the app. So why are so many of us still using it? On a little more true crime, Sushil Gupta joins us to reflect on the 38th anniversary of the bombing of Air India Flight 182, the biggest mass murder in our history. And his mom was among the 329 people killed that day. How did the families cope then? Why did this country turn its back on the tragedy for so long? And what lessons can we learn from it now? But first, we take a trip down memory lane with one of those who helped Kitchener's Jamal Murray along his path to an NBA title. The 26-year-old Denver Nugget overcame a serious injury that kept him out all last season to shine in this year's playoffs. And we find out how the motel made famous in the Emmy-winning sitcom Schitt's Creek makes a cameo along Murray's journey. What's up, though? Let's start in Ottawa. We won't be talking about politics or scandals. We will be talking about senators, though. The gr- a group led by Michael Andlauer has emerged from a long and public bidding process with an agreement in principle to be the new owners of the Ottawa Senators. Why does this matter, you say? I don't live in Ottawa. I don't even cheer for the Senators. Well, they're one of only seven Canadian teams, and the price tag apparently is a billion dollars. That's right, a billion dollars. It's a new record for an NHL franchise sale, topping the $900 million paid by Fenway Sports Group in 2021 for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, it was also reported that the Malhotra family of Ottawa-based developer Clarich Holmes and Jeff York, co-CEO of the Farm Boy grocery chain, also in and around Ottawa, are part of the same ownership group. Um, and this is all subject to approval, of course, before it's uh, and finalization of the sale process. But it looks like it's going through. Uh, keep in mind that Eugene Melnick, who passed in March of 2022, purchased the team and the, the Canadian Tire Centre in 2003 for $130 million U.S. So from 130 million US set 20 years ago to a billion dollars today. Of course, he left the team to his daughters, Anna and Olivia. The sisters will keep 10% of the franchise, and the team stays in Ottawa. That's a condition of the sale. If you don't know much about Andlauer, he's the founder and CEO of a healthcare group. Uh, he started a private equity company in Toronto as well. He's had involvement in hockey, including in the uh, AHL and the OHL. He's also been on the board of governors. Uh, he's been an alternate governor of the Montreal Canadiens. It's purchasing a share back in 2009. So he has his hockey chops, but a billion dollars for the league's 24th ranked team by value is a reminder of just how prized sports franchises have become. Even one trapped geographically between the mighty Maple Leafs and the Cornerstone Canadians. Joining me now is Moisha Lander. He's a senior lecturer in economics at Concordia University and an expert in sports economics. Uh, Moisha, thanks for your time tonight. It is, uh, especially because it's uh, rare that we see changes in ownership groups happen in any professional sports. Uh, the fact that it's happening in Ottawa and the fact that it was for so much money, it's it, it's a good story. Yeah, let's talk about the money because, you know, back in the day, Eugene Melnick paid a fraction of that, $130 U.S. for the team and the rink. And here we are, and it looks like uh, this new ownership consortium is paying something upwards of a billion for the same product. Yeah, and and they want to negotiate for a new arena. And what we see is that when those arenas get built, that adds to the value of the franchise, too. So we could very easily in five years be talking about this franchise being worth one and a half to two billion dollars. So it's a crazy return on your investment uh, if you can get your hands on one of these toys. 
What has happened? Because it wasn't long ago that a team like the Senators was considered to be maybe one of the least valuable teams in the four major leagues in North America, right? Yeah, and it it, it still is one of the least valuable. I know that's a bit of a contradiction because part of the story that's being told is that this is the largest valuation for any sale of an NHL franchise, but it's mm-hmm. because it's the most recent sale, right? If the Leafs went up for sale tomorrow or the Montreal Canadiens went up for sale, they would embarrass this $1 billion number. The the design of any professional sports league is to create in economics what we would call excess demand. What you do is you line up all of the billionaires on one side and say, wouldn't you like to have a shiny toy? And then you only dangle in front of them 32 franchises now in the NHL, more billionaires than there are franchises. And that just keeps propelling the value of them up the same way that the value of Taylor Swift concert tickets gets driven up because there's way more people that want to get in than there are seats available for them. Yeah, surge pricing means those seats up in the rafters are just are, are expensive too to these days, right? I mean, not to compare the Senators to seats up in the rafters, but sports franchise-wise, if you look at the fact that Chelsea, the soccer team, sold for $3.2 billion last year, it gives you an idea of what the dynamics are. Tell me about this new ownership group because there were some big kind of fancy names involved in the bids. Ryan Reynolds at one point, that ended, and then Snoop Dogg was in there and and instead we've gotten something far more hockey oriented i would say Uh, yeah i would say corporate let's not forget too that you know i know ryan reynolds snoop dogg um the weekend they they were all being thrown out here as the headline act i guess if we want to continue with the the music analogy and the rafters and things like that you know the thing is that they weren't going to be majority owners right behind each of those bids was a billionaire business person as well. So this particular ownership group had a former ownership stake in the Montreal Canadiens. It was a minority ownership, but they're well-respected within hockey circles. Gary Bettman, Bill Daly, uh, kind of the number one and two for the NHL corporation are comfortable with this person. They they know him uh, and they're they're familiar and, and that that's a, a huge plus. And of course, a lot of his money was made in real estate development. And so given that the next play for the Ottawa Senators is not to win a Stanley Cup, but to get a new arena built in downtown Ottawa or downtown adjacent Ottawa, you know, the the fact that you have somebody who understands how real estate works and how that type of negotiation works and how to get the proper zoning laws changed and things like that, that's going to be hugely important. You don't want this hung out like eight years the way it has been in Calgary. It's interesting because Michael Allenlauer has been involved in transportation and healthcare. Then you have some local, uh, the Malhotra family, who are Claridge Homes, who are very big in Ottawa, a developer. And then Jeff York, the uh, co-CEO of Farm Boy. So there's some real local flavor to it too, which I suppose is important when it comes still to NHL teams. There's still a bit of a family feel. It's not like you know professional football teams in England where the owners are from all over the world. That's true. And it's one of the things that the NHL prizes, especially in the last 25 years. If you remember at the end of the last century, the Quebec Nordiques, moved to uh, Denver, the uh, original Winnipeg Jets moved to Phoenix, the Hartford Whalers moved to Carolina. There there was a whole bunch of franchise movement that was going on, and and it's embarrassing. You you don't want this jumping around. So the idea of having something that has a connection to Ottawa is hugely important because it symbolizes stability then. And so we're not going to have a discussion in five years' time about will this franchise move to Quebec City or Houston or anybody else that's looking to get an NHL franchise? Uh, Moisha, it wasn't that long ago, I mean, 20 years ago, when everyone was looking at Canadian teams in the NHL and thinking, wow, this may not last. Like this, you know, so the Nordiques left, that was a big deal. The Jets left and went to Phoenix, although they got their team back from Atlanta. Uh, this would suggest, I think, that things are looking pretty good for NH- for Canadian NHL franchises these days. 
Yeah, I mean, you certainly have strong ownership groups in Toronto and Montreal. So I, I don't envision that they would view today's news as a uh, reason to put the for sale sign out front of their franchises. Calgary just allegedly finished negotiating their arena deal but that that's been said before so until you actually see the finished product but assuming that the deal uh, is completed that's going to probably add 50 percent or more to the value of their franchise so i can't imagine why they would want to sell at this point edmonton is constantly touting their new downtown district built around that arena so i don't know that they're going anywhere so you know the, the number of canadian teams that are even up for sale is is Probably at most, maybe Vancouver, if you wanted to recklessly speculate. But uh, yeah, you know, Canadian franchises look pretty solid right now with good ownership groups in place. Given what the Senators have just uh, apparently sold for, would other ownership groups be looking at those assets thinking, wow, this is a good time to to sell these? There's a lot of people out there interested. And if the Senators can get a billion, imagine how much I could get for the Canucks, for instance. You could. But remember that it's a matter of finding a local ownership group that can take over from that too, right? And so that's that's where things start to get a little bit uh, more difficult in Canada. We, we don't have the number of billionaires that could now take on these franchises. So you're now starting to have to look at corporations that want to do it and what exactly is the lay of the land. In Vancouver's case, their arena is not old, but it's not new either. It's kind of in that arena and stadium middle age yeah. in, in that 10 to 20 year range, right? So I, I don't know necessarily that an ownership group at this point wants to necessarily take that on because that's when the cost of the arenas start to rise, but not so much that you want to necessarily rebuild. And of course, with Vancouver, finding land where you can build is always a challenge anyway. So it's possible that they might kick the tires or you know trial balloon or whatever analogy you want to use, but I don't know how fast the Aquilinis are looking to, to get out. A more general question, uh, you know, the fact that these franchises are now considered to be such uh, glittery objects and, and, and the amount of people who are lining up to buy them, it, it does say a lot about the economic times we're living in. There seems to be, you know, a, a, you know, those with a lot of money seem to have an awful lot of money right now to spend on things that in the past would have seemed a bit frivolous. There weren't that many people walking around Canada 20 years ago who could drop huge amounts of money on a franchise. Now there seems to be. You're right. And, you know, you mentioned that uh, Eugene Melnick got the arena and the team 20 years ago. Uh, I, I don't think you mentioned that he got it for a, a little under, I think, $100 million. Yeah. So if you try and extrapolate out uh, what sort of return on investment you get when you have something for $100 million that you can turn into a billion in 20 years, you're not going to get those types of returns on the New York Stock Exchange, on the NASDAQ, on the TSX. So uh, I, I think part of it, too, is not just the the billionaires themselves being available, but the number of investment opportunities that are that juicy, as well as being able to have a really interesting toy. I mean, it's great to have shares in Apple, but what what can you do to to flash that about? Uh, but to be able to entertain in the the owner's box and, and be able to watch a top notch hockey game. Uh, that that's kind of a, an extra bonus on your return on investment. Yeah, as long as they're winning, <laughs> or at least somewhat winning. Uh, but but you're right. It's interesting. I guess people's perception of the value of sports franchises. I mean, and there's other factors at play with TV money and so on. And but people's uh, impressions of the value of sports franchises has changed quite radically uh, since those sort of heady days of the of the '90s, early '90s, when you know local soccer teams in England were owned by local local rich folk, but not multi billion. Billionaires. And same with same with hockey franchises. You know, it wasn't that long ago where these were essentially pretty inexpensive by by the standards of then and the standards of today. 
Yeah, well, you know, it, it's interesting that you say that because I, I always say to my students that sports holds a very disproportionate amount of importance within society. We're talking about a franchise today that's selling for a billion dollars and breaking a record for an NHL franchise. Yet at the same time, Walmart and Amazon do approximately six, seven hundred billion dollars worth of sales in a year. Right. So, you know, when, when you put it in context, like, look, it's it's a number beyond what I can imagine, whatever I could hope to have in my life in terms of wealth. But it, it's such small potatoes. And when you think about then some of these companies that are setting up distribution centers or the, the number of employees uh, in the city that might be tied to these companies, the, the sports element is very, very small. But it's really, really fascinating because, like I said, shares of Apple, they, they don't wow you in the way that this free agent was signed or who are they going to draft in a couple of weeks? Uh, it, it's much more fascinating. And so I, I think that that's where we kind of get this disconnect that a hey, billion dollars is a big number, uh, certainly compared to 20 years ago, but it, it's nothing when you compare it to actual firms out there that are producing physical goods and services. And the reputational risk is always there. I mean, we see different, you know, whether it be Vancouver or Manchester right now, you see lots of different fan bases that essentially want their owners out, right? I mean, it could, it could be, it could be a, real, a two-edged sword for sure. Yeah, and I, I think that where where there's maybe a very interesting story that we're probably not far from from having a conversation about is uh, we saw last week what happened with the PGA and the Live Tour, which was backed by uh, Saudi financiers uh, connected to the royal family, uh, at what point then do we see part of this Saudi investment group show up and say, a billion dollars? That's chump change. Here, we'll give it to you in cash. Yeah. Give me one of these franchises, right? And then we start having a conversation in Canada and the US about, do we want you know, certain sport washing to go on within our sport, or do we want to keep it a little more like you you've referenced already that the idea of European soccer, where maybe we want something a little more domestic owned, or maybe we want something that's a little more local flavored uh, and, and let's stop obsessing on this valuation. And there's going to be a tension there where there are going to be some owners that say, I, I don't care who's writing the check as long as it clears. Yeah. I'll take the money. Thank you. Uh, Moshe Lander, as always. Thank you. Anytime. <laughs> It's just an amazing feeling, you know, I uh, blood, sweat, and tears to get back to this point. Um, everybody on my, my team in here, everybody on the floor, believe in me, believe in me to get back to myself, and, uh, you know, we proved a lot of doubters wrong, and, I mean, look at this. Jamal Murray, last night in Denver. The Nuggets, uh, you may not know, have won their first ever NBA title in 47 years of, of an existence, beating the Miami Heat in Game 5 last night at home. Jamal Murray, of course, is from Kitchener, Ontario. Uh, he had the greatest playoff run of any Canadian player ever, even though he's the ninth Canadian to win an NBA title, but he had the greatest run ever. He was overcome with emotion, the 26-year-old was, as they celebrated that victory last night, uh, because he had a remarkable comeback this year. He had a terrible injury. He tore his ACL at the end of the 2020-2021 season and missed all of last season due to that, to recover from that injury as the celebrations went on. There was a really wonderful moment captured with the team's head coach where he basically thanks him for his patience. Where to get you one, coach? Where to get you one, baby? I know. Where to get you, you one? Thank you. I appreciate you staying patient oh, with me. Oh no. I appreciate you staying patient with me. Y'all could have done it. We got on a different route. I appreciate you staying with me, man. We got it done. I love you. Love you too, baby. Love, brother. Love, brother. Better get it done, man. 
There you go. I mean, it was quite the scene. Now, uh, Jamal Murray's resilience and determination come as absolutely no surprise to those who've known him here in Canada as he progressed to where he went to to last night. And that includes my next guest, whose dreams of building a prep school basketball program in Orangeville outside of Toronto were given a big boost a decade ago when a young Jamal Murray opted to play for him. And believe it or not, there is more to that union a decade ago than just basketball because in its early days, the prep team players uh, called the hotel that was the motel, rather, that was made famous by the sitcom Schitt's Creek home. So there's this sort of confluence of Canadian success stories that have all come together. Now we have Emmys and an NBA championship. And to tie all those stories together, Jesse Tipping joins me now. He's president and founder of Orangeville Prep and the Athlete Institute. Uh, Jesse, thanks so much. Well, thanks so much for having me, Ben. What a day. I mean, I, I watched, you know, the, the highlights of last night. I was on air as they were winning. But uh, but what your reaction, because what a big moment and what a what a cathartic moment to see to see Jamal Murray express so much emotion about the win, too. It was surreal uh, for me. I mean, these last 10 years uh, since he came to Orangeville Prep have kind of flown by in a blink and to sort of see this snapshot of him kissing the Larry O'Brien trophy and, you know, just performing the way he did was just, it was absolutely surreal. And, you know, to, to watch it with my three kids who didn't exist when he was here with us was, was also, you know, incredibly surreal. So it's, uh, it was an amazing moment for myself, but even, you know, bigger moment for him. And a big moment for Orangeville Prep too, because as you mentioned, this was a dream of yours, and here you are watching one of your one of the people who put their faith in you achieve the highest the highest honors in in basketball. Yeah, and I can't stress that enough. I mean, when when I first started Orangeville Prep, you know, in, in 2012, uh, and then Jamal joined us in 2013, he was taking a, a massive massive leap of faith on my program, but also on himself and betting on himself that, you know, he could get exactly what he needed because he was, he was a very pointed individual of where he wanted to go and where he knew he was going. So again, to see all those things, you know, come to fruition last night was, uh, was incredible. He's had a really tough run up until this season. I mean, he tore that ACL uh, a few years back, and and there was there were doubts about what he. I mean, I, I don't imagine his ability to recover from that devastating injury and then play as well as he did surprises you, though. Uh, no, it doesn't. I mean, you always get concerned because you know, just because somebody's had the the same ACL sur- or injury before doesn't mean that somebody else's body is going to react the exact same way. So there's always that unknown of, you know, just trying to get through injury. But knowing who Jamal is, his work ethic and his dedication, I knew that an injury was not going to sort of set him back too far. And I think, again, he had a tough decision on when he returned as well, right? And trying to, you know, should he return in the midst of Denver's last playoff run last year uh, and sort of making that decision not to, or, you know, whether it was even possible, but I think just that extra time allowed for him to uh, really get ready and be prepared to make an incredible run this year. And at, at the end of the day, win win the NBA finals. So he obviously made the right decision. There's a really nice moment last night where he thanks his coach for being patient with him. And it's, it feels like that says a lot about a human being in that moment. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, really just the culture of what I've been able to see 
at Denver, you know, starting with another great leader in Jokic, two of them and knowing how humble Jamal is. And again, his whole objective is to win. Uh, his, his objective was not to become an all-star or, you know, score X amount of points. His objective was to win. And in reminiscing about, you know, the days that he was with us, we had the opportunity of, you know, uh, the Larry O'Brien trophy came to, came to Toronto in 2013. Uh, and we took our whole team with Jamal on it to go see it at that time. And oh, wow. some pictures with our team and, you know, with the trophy and Jamal sort of in the in the background with that picture. I knew then he didn't want to touch it until it was something that he won, which was really you know incredible to see that him touching it last night and just seeing knowing that full sort of sequence of events of he's been fighting for that, he's been working for that in you know the shadows when people aren't watching, whenever it is, he's working towards that goal. And just to see the joy on his face was incredible because I know how hard he's worked. You know, so many uh, young players, men and women across North America, dream of, of being that good and of, and of winning. What do you think set Jamal Murray apart? How did he manage to achieve this? Because it's a dream that many hold and few achieve. Yeah, I think that Jamal has a special family around him. His mom and dad are incredible support systems that really just foster Jamal to be Jamal, not, you know, Jamal to try to be like this player or or do this. It's it's about just maximizing who Jamal can be and not comparing against, you know, where others are at. It's just keep working to be better at yourself. If you do that, then you'll be, you know, exactly where you are right now. So I think with the people, you know, not everybody has as incredible of a support system, but I think the one thing that Jamal has always, you know, chose for himself is I'm just going to work harder than everybody else. Um, I'm just going to want it more and I'm not going to tell social media how bad I want or how hard I'm working. I'm just going to do it. That's just who Jamal has has been from the time I've known him. And you've talked about his pride in being Canadian too, his pride in Kitchener, his pride in, in coming to you in Orangeville when he had obviously had other options. That's special to him. Yeah, Jamal is as Canadian as it gets. I think just you know him representing his country in every possible way Again, and just so, whether that's support, whether that's through playing, whether that's through, you know, just making sure that people know he's Canadian. That's why he chose to stay in Canada and chose to go to Orangeville Prep because he wanted to bet on a Canadian. He wanted to, you know, support a Canadian program. He wanted to know that when we were going down to the U.S., that it was Canada coming down to play against, you know, those American prep schools. And, and uh, you know, that's just something that, he holds pretty tight for himself. I think we as Canadians are just uh, always kind of assuming that there's better on the other side of the border or that they can do it better or that, uh, you know, there's better programs or better teams. And, you know, Jamal's attitude was, but I'm going to be the best. So <laughs> I'm going to do it here and I'm going to help those other who want to be the best bring up to that level. And, forever sort of grateful that he saw that value in Orangeville prep and, and chose to sort of attack this journey together. And, you know, we're, we're in a great spot at Orangeville prep now, 10, 10 plus years of, uh, of the Academy running. And we've got eight players now who have been in the NBA and over 35 division one scholarships. And that really kind of starts from Jamal's decision to, you know, bet on himself and in turn bet on, Orangeville Prep to to help him accomplish his goals. 
So this building actually houses a basketball team. Large athletic gentlemen live here. During the year, it's painted black and red, just like that building over there. So, I think we've improved. I would say we have.、Mm. I would. I would say. We, But I think that's the、have. team colors anyway.、Okay. Trivia. Jesse Tipping is with us. He's the president and founder of Orangeville Prep and the Athlete Institute. We're talking about Canadian Jamal Murray of Kitchener, Ontario,、uh, winning the NBA title last night with the Denver Nuggets. Their first title. Ever forty-seven years in, and、uh, Murray had just an unbelievable playoff run, coming back from a really bad injury to have a great season and a remarkable run as the Nuggets took the NBA title over the Miami Heat last night. Tell me a bit about the the Shits Creek, because this is a really interesting story. Jamal、uh, actually spent some time when you were first starting Orangeville Prep.、Uh, he spent some time living in the motel that we all came to know as the Shits Creek Motel. Yeah, it's a really fun sort of、uh, collide of Canadiana where. At all the same time, myself was trying to, you know, get Orangeville Prep up and up and running, and sort of an established academy. Jamal was a young, you know, aspiring basketball player, you know, who wanted to make it for himself. And then Shit's Creek was a, a new show that was trying to get off the ground, and so I actually、um, owned the Shit's Creek Motel at the time, where we would house all of our basketball players. Jamal Murray lived in Shit's Creek Motel, and Once we sort of signed on, you know, with the show to to film at the motel, again having Eugene and Catherine O'Hare and 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 all the rest of the the great crew, you know, see these athletes, you know, around the rooms, being like, "Wow, they're so tall. What are they doing here?" And then the athletes being like, "Oh, I saw so and so from this TV show in that movie. What are they doing here?" And everybody was really trying to create something special at the time and. Ten years later, you know we've got endless amounts of Emmys and now an NBA Finals championship, and you know it's just a really, really fun sort of collide of、uh, Canadian, you know, great stories. Yeah, who knew so much Canadian success could run into each other at the same place? They, I mean, they there there were hoops there, right? I mean, they played ball on the land that that the motel occupies. Yeah, we had one sort of portable driveway hoop, which would either be on the driveway or they'd put it on the roof or somewhere for trick shots. Like, it's not like the motel is in the most、uh, you、it's、know populated area <laughs> to do things. So it's either you know they would go down to the river and and、uh, try to catch fish with their bare hands, or they would come up with trick shots with the basketball nets that they would try to do, or catch raccoons in、uh, in recycling bins. So. It was a, a fun time of you know a lot of early beginnings trying to you know set their course and the maturity of all those lanes have really、uh, you know come to fruition now and it's it's just be able to look back and see how I sort of have a piece in all of those yeah you know, beginnings is a fun、uh, is a fun you know token to have for myself so. Absolutely, and and they used to the, the, when the crew moved in to to do the filming, the team used to move out. Is that right? Yeah, so the team would have to move out for you know about six weeks in May to June, and you know that was kind of like for the guys that would were there sort of year after year. It was like their spring holiday because they would get put up in a hotel,、um, you know, and they would be able to eat and get room service and be able to you know get the, the breakfast buffet and <laughs> so like to them it was you know nothing more than they didn't know what this show was, but. They got this, you know, little, you know, extra experience in the spring, and and then the the show would come in, and 
they would try to figure out who all these, you know, tall athletes were that were, you know, exiting the rooms. And <laughs> yeah, everybody was really, you know, friendly at the time. And there was times when the players would stay and watch them film and be able to talk to Daniel and Eugene and Catherine and, you know, to hear a little bit of the backstory of the players. And they've actually reached out to me in coming years to be like, is this the kid that I saw, you know, at the, wow. at the hotel when we were filming? And um, so it's fun to see that both both sides have had like this, you know, cross pollination where they're 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 following the results of you know how each sort of uh, lane has gone. And, and in your case, I, I gather the motel's no longer in your hands. You've you've grown too. Uh, the Orangeville Prep has moved into. You're doing other sports. You're doing women's basketball as well. You've kind of grown the, as everyone else has succeeded. So have you? Yeah, no, it's been, uh, again, um, the purpose of Orangeville Prep was to try to solve a pathway for for Canadian athletes that it needed to be solved. And that's just around putting the resources and opportunity in the hands of the athletes, just giving them what they need in order to sort of pursue their dreams. And, you know, since Jamal has been with us, we're, you know, with one team, we're now at, you know, five academy teams, three on the boys, two on the girls, uh, soccer academy with you know, Athlete Institute Football Club with another, you know, 10 to 12 teams, uh, which are also sort of number one in, in in the country in soccer as well. And, you know, just growing at the same time, we've moved out of the motel and we're now in, you know, a two-story residence. It's it's good. The maturity for all all aspects is, uh, it's been really good, but I think it comes from the starting point of a guy like Jamal betting on himself that he could, you know, get what he needed on Canadian soil. And, a guy like myself betting on myself to do something that nobody thought was possible in Canada to do it in Canada. And, you know, on the Schitt's Creek side, again, betting on themselves that they could put a world-class show out there, you know, on Canadian network and produced by Canadians. So I think it's, again, when you, when, when you bet on yourself and you don't just think that the grass is greener on the other side and you try to understand what the needs are to, to be successful. I think anything's possible when you've got the, you know, the full Canadian spirit behind you. Jesse tipping. Well put, we'll leave it at that. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Ben. Thank you for having me. The sorrow and profound loss they now face touches the hearts of all of their fellow Canadians. We share their grief and we'll do everything in our power to determine the cause and prevent a recurrence of this horrible disaster. That was then Prime Minister Brian Mulroney back in June of 1985, reacting to news that 329 people, including 280 Canadians, 86 kids, had been killed in the crash of Air India Flight 182 off the coast of Ireland as it made its way from Montreal to London. We would, of course, soon learn that it was no accident. A terrorist bomb had brought that plane down, making it the deadliest aviation attack prior to 9-11. It remains the largest mass murder in Canadian history. A separate luggage bomb destined for a second Air India flight killed two Japanese baggage handlers at Tokyo's Narita Airport that same day. Uh, I remember the day well. I think a lot of us do. It uh, has faded with time, of course. It is many, 38 years ago this month now, but it's important that it's a day we never forget. The attack, of course, launched an international investigation, a massive investigation that led to just one person being convicted, along with the accusations of failures on behalf of the RCMP, uh, intelligence services, airport security, and the federal government. There were many incidences or many times when it appeared that authorities were reaching a breakthrough in the case 
it never happened. Have a listen to what was said. This goes back two decades now. We know who did it. We know why they did it. We know how they did it. We know when they did it. And unfortunately, we cannot go to the prosecution stage at this point in time because the test of the burden of proof has not been met to the satisfaction of the RCMP or, indeed, Crown Counsel. There is very little that we need now. And that was the message repeated again and again and again. Uh, Now, the families fought for, the families of the victims fought for, and finally managed to get a public inquiry, one that I covered when I was working for Global in Ottawa back in 2006. It was a lengthy lengthy public inquiry headed by a former Supreme Court Justice John Major. He did not mince words in his final report, finding that Canadian authorities should have known that Air India Flight 182 was a potential terrorist target and blamed a, quote, cascading series of errors by government, the RCMP, and the country's spy agency for failing to prevent the disaster, saying agencies were not prepared for the threat of terror attacks in 1985. A cascading series of errors contributed to the failure of our police and security forces to prevent this atrocity. The government needs to take responsibility to avoid further failures and to prevent a return to a culture of complacency. Justice John Major there uh, talking about the findings of his report. Well, 38 years later, of course, there has been no further developments, at least on the prosecution side of all this. But for many, as that day is, is a national tragedy, and I think we've all learned over the years, Canada has has come to understand what a national tragedy it was, because at the time, I remember distinctly that it took a very long time for Canada to recognize what had happened to so many Canadians that day. Uh, For others, though, it was very much a personal tragedy. Sushil Gupta was 12 when he lost his mom, Ramwati, that day. She was alone on the plane flying to India. Um, And for the years that followed, his family, his dad, Uh, took on a huge role amongst the the Air India Victims Families Association that advocated for the families. They pushed for that public inquiry that they finally got 20 years later. That day would also help propel that then 12-year-old to become a lawyer, a prosecutor with the Federal Prosecution Service, counseling on crimes against humanity and war crimes with the Department of Justice, and serving as vice chair of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. He's also been chair of the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime and co-chair of the Kanishka Project. The Kanishka was, of course, the name of uh, given by Air India to the plane. That was Flight 182. Um, he, there have been so many incredible uh, testaments to his achievements over the many years, but Sushil Gupta is here himself to tell us all about it. Uh, Sushil, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this tonight. Well, thank you for having me, Mr. Larabar. When we look back at um, at 1985, I, I mean, I think a lot of us remember back to that day. It's become, I think, in some ways, we've understood the history of it better, but you were just 12. You had a, you had a paper route. Your mom was away. Um, what do you remember back from back then? It, it, uh, it must still still live inside you. You know, uh, unfortunately, it does. Uh, that uh, the day that I learned um, that the airplane plane had, had crashed and ultimately learned that it exploded and that my mother was uh, dead uh, is fresh in my mind. Unfortunately or fortunately, I'll, I'll never forget that day. You, um, afterwards, I think you've talked about this many times afterwards, uh, and I think this was talked about at length in the inquiry, was that... 
you know, the, the families were very much left to fend for themselves. I think there's some, you, you tell an incredible story about, about how few seats were available for the families to go to Ireland, how, how little help was available, how few Canadian officials, how there were no Canadian officials on the ground. When you look back at that now, how do you summarize what, what, the, government, what the government's reaction to that tragedy was? You know, certainly I think, and many of the other families uh, feel that uh, we were treated uh, almost with disdain. We were certainly ignored uh, uh, by Canadian government officials uh, at the time of the tragedy and for, unfortunately, for, for a number of years uh, that followed as we uh, sought for the truth. Uh, uh, we were treated as adversaries instead of innocent victims as uh, uh, our, our family should have been treated. Your father did such a such a kind of Herculean job advocating on behalf of the families, despite the fact that he was he had you to raise, of course, at the time. Where did he find the strength to do that? I think my father, anyone who's ever met him, uh, maybe you've met him yourself, uh, mm-hmm. has always had a sense of uh, of justice. He's a, a scientist by uh, profession, uh, uh, very much believes in right or wrong, and. Uh, Obviously, seeing that um, no one is advocating, no one is providing information, no one's providing any support, uh, he felt that he owed this uh, to, I guess, my, my brother and I, uh, obviously my mother and the, the other 328 uh, victims and all their families uh, to pursue the truth and pursue justice. What were those? I mean, you went to Ireland together. I know that your, your, your brother, who was older, who was 18, I guess, stayed home. And only the two of you went to Ireland at the time. And, and you know, just being around your dad, what was, how did you process what, it, I mean, these days we, we, we understand so much more about, you know, trauma and, and we talk about things like this. But it feels like back in 1985, and we're about the same age, that these things just weren't talked about at all. No, you're, you're absolutely uh, correct. Uh, PTSD is not uh, terminology that existed at the time. Uh, certainly the families, we were uh, obviously in shock. Um, you, you raise a few interesting facts. You know, the uh, we were informed of the news that the plane uh, was missing and crashed on that Sunday, June 23rd. And it was only two days later that uh, my father and I found ourselves in Ireland. And, you know, to give you an example of the lack of support, um, you know, we were a family that uh, 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 my father came to Canada in 67 uh, to do his PhD and and um, ultimately came uh, finished that, went back and came back and I came when I was six months old. So we're a family of immigrants and I think like the experience of many uh, immigrant families, um, uh, you're trying to start a new life, building roots and so forth and, and uh, finances are tight, so... With the plane crashing, and, and, and um, my father was left in the situation where, whether it was Air India and the Canadian government, they were only willing to uh, provide uh, uh, air, air tickets for two family members per victim. My father was put in the unenviable situation of having to choose. Does he leave both boys behind 48 hours after they've been told their mother's been killed? Uh, um, we didn't have any other relatives in North America at the time. And I think, you know, the decision that he made was to bring me, his little 12-year-old boy, and, and hope that my uh, 18-year-old brother at the time could uh, 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 be supported by, by other friends and community members. And so we found ourselves in Ireland. Uh, uh, and what did I see of him? Uh, uh, I think he was trying to be strong for me as his son. 
but also he was there to 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 learn what happened, um, uh, recover. Ultimately, we learned it was not a rescue mission, but a recovery mission. But uh, to recover, uh, hopefully, her her remains and and uh, ultimately, as well during that time there, we we were in Ireland for about three or four weeks, by my recollection. And he got to know other family members um, and started taking down names. And uh, for some reason, I don't know if he could explain to this day, having this feeling that uh, we would need to stay united uh, for a long time. Uh, so, Sheila, I mean, I watched this unfold over many, many, many years, the search for justice that never seemed to work. For the families, um, without going, we won't get into sort of relitigate all the details of what happened, but how frustrating was it for, for you and your father and all the other families that time and time again, it seemed like everything had been fumbled, everything had been done wrong, and that no one was going to be brought to justice here? You know, um Year after year after the bombing, uh, the families were questioning, wondering, seeking updates. Uh, what is the status of the investigation? Is there any hope? Uh, what, what is the government doing? What are law enforcement agencies doing? And we were hit with silence or we were told repeatedly year after year that was an ongoing investigation and information couldn't be shared because it would jeopardize uh, things. So we suffered. We suffered with our loved ones uh, having been killed. There were a lot of beautiful lives that uh, uh, Canada never was able to fully benefit from uh, because they, these people were killed and taken early. And we suffered because our own our own government uh, didn't seem to be there to support us, to inform us, uh, 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 to advocate for us. But as I mentioned earlier. Uh, Families were treated as adversaries, and I, I think that's a finding that uh, Justice John Major uh, uh, alluded to in his uh, commission inquiry report. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've always wondered what was behind that, because when you look at the, and I mean, you, you know this better than I do, you're, you're, you're a lawyer and have been for a very long time, but when you look at the facts of the case, it seems so crystal clear that this was a Canadian tragedy, although for many, many, many years, and I know this from having sat through the major inquiry and listened to a lot of, uh, you know, the other uh, families of, of the victims as well talk about the fact that they felt like Canada turned their back on them. No, absolutely. Um, you know, there were, it certainly wasn't treated, or at least we feel, uh, many of us feel that it wasn't treated as a uh, Canadian tragedy um, of the of the 329 uh, uh, people who were killed, 268 were Canadian citizens. Uh, but that's not how we were treated. Like, I remember being a 12-year-old little boy uh, uh, delivering my newspapers on my newspaper route and uh, at some point uh, uh, going door-to-door, knocking to get people to sign a petition, asking for the government to uh, call into uh, call in a public inquiry. And uh, uh, many of these people, in, uh, you know, uh, were angry with me as if... Uh, I was bringing problems from another country into uh, Canada. Uh, you know, but as I mentioned, I came to Canada six months old. Canada's my home. It's uh, uh, my country. It's all I've ever known. Uh, yet, uh, even by some members of the public, we were treated as this is a problem we brought upon ourselves. Yeah, there really wasn't uh, any understanding of what was happening. I mean, I think the, the intelligence, obviously, after the major inquiry, the intelligence agencies had no idea, had no real understanding of what was going on. There is there is a great picture of you with your Toronto Star hat. I mean, a great picture. There's a picture of you that's quite famous with your Toronto Star. 
baseball hat on, right? Uh, it's amazing to think that, that, yeah, I can't believe you'd go door to door with a petition and people would, would say no. Uh, but it's somehow, as, as we went through the process of the inquiry, somehow it felt like what it ha- the tragedy of that day and how much the families fought for the inquiry uh, allowed Canada in some ways to look at itself in the mirror. Yeah, you know, certainly it was in 2005, uh, so it took, what, uh, 15, 16 years for charges to be laid, uh, uh, and then ultimately a trial that uh, ended in 2005 um, with, uh, with acquittals of the uh, two accused. And mm-hmm. That seems to get journalists like yourselves, Terry Molesky, Terry Glavin, Kim Bolin, and many others, uh, uh, Rex Murphy, for that matter, on, on the national uh rallying behind the families that uh, uh, justice had not been served. And, and I think that's really the first time it entered the, uh, let's call it the mainstream uh, public frame. Uh, uh, prior to that, um, you know, when I was in university, I did two degrees, obviously my undergrad and my law school, there were a number mm-hmm. of people who did, did not know about this tragedy. Uh, certainly it wasn't recognized as as, 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 as you indicated, as a Canadian tragedy, much as we've recognized 9-11 as a, uh, uh, an American or a Western tragedy, or the seven-seven attacks in England as, as, as the UK. This wasn't uh, uh, treated as that Canadian tragedy until I think after the uh, the acquittals of the, uh, of the accused and that that advocacy, the families, uh, and the efforts that, and energy that we took to uh, 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 continue to seek that public inquiry and ultimately, which was announced in 2006. Right, 20 years later. 20 years Absolutely. later. Yeah, and I think yeah. you mentioned as well that, um, you know, it had not been recognized a Canadian tragedy. The first time I saw those words uh, of, of recognition of it as a Canadian tragedy was in 2005 on the uh, 20th anniversary, a few months after the uh, trial. That was the first time I recall, and I could be wrong, but that was the first time I recall any Canadian government official referring to it as a uh, Canadian tragedy. You know, and I think... Yeah. Um, Ultimately, Justice Major himself, uh, uh, in, in that inquiry, made it clear that this was a conspiracy that occurred in Canada. This was bombs that were built in Canada. It was planned for in Canada. And as mentioned, it killed 268 uh, Canadian citizens. Uh, it, it was certainly a Canadian tragedy. So, Sheila, I mean, I remember covering the... Um the inquiry. It was an incredible, and you were at this point, you were, you had graduated from law school, you were a practicing lawyer. Um, it, it was remarkable how much information came out during Justice Major's inquiry, stuff that we should have heard about years earlier, but didn't. Uh, tell me a bit about your reaction to it and what we learned that day and how much it turned the tide for the families in terms of how they felt about how seriously Canada took what had happened then. Well, I think, um, you know, I'm torn. I, I understand the families, including myself, would have liked to have known more uh, beforehand. But uh, certainly, I think all of us understood that uh, we didn't want to jeopardize the investigation and ultimately the prosecution. But when uh, some of those facts and news of, of mistakes, of carelessness, of uh, negligence, I think is uh, just as soon in the trial that describes some of the uh, actions, it, it, it shocked many. It shocked many of the families. Others, I think, uh, 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 certainly came to, to assume that's what had happened. And, and it hurt. You know, ultimately, it hurt us. Our country, our investigation agencies uh, 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 weren't as prepared as they should have been to protect uh, all Canadians. 
Was there a time when you began to reconcile yourself, you, your father, the families, you began to reconcile yourself to the idea that, that there may never be justice here? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was uh, it was about 10 years after the bombing um, when then now former uh, commissioner, uh, deputy commissioner Gary Bass uh, uh, started meeting with the families and providing updates and uh, explained as much as he could that there were a number of challenges. This was uh, an international uh, uh, crime uh, uh, with it crashing off the coast of Ireland and and so forth. Uh, so, so, so I think many had lost hope over time, but many still persevered and and uh, uh, gave the, the investigation agencies of the benefit of the doubt. Um, and certainly we were, you know, I don't know, Ben, if uh, pleased is the right word, but uh, mm. certainly uh, some of us were uh, uh, pleased or content that uh, charges had been laid, but of course uh, very disappointed uh, uh, with the outcome. When you look back at it today, um, and like all tragedies, things fade, right? Memories fade, people pass, family members pass. The voices that were there then are no longer here now. Many to tell the stories, there are many here, like yourself, who are. Um, what do you hope that Canadians, that this country doesn't forget about that day in 1985, that we can't afford to forget? I think uh, why myself and other families uh, still are lend our voices, uh, whether it's speaking in front of parliamentary committees or, or, or speaking to law enforcement organizations across the country, um, is, is, is number one, to, to we, we want our loved ones to be remembered. We want these tribes to be remembered. But we're also focused on bringing it to the present, reminding Canadians that uh, terrorism is not uh, 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 an activity that only happens in other countries. It has happened here. It continues to happen here. And uh, we need to be vigilant against uh, uh, hatred. We need to be vigilant against uh, violence. And uh, uh, um, if we're, you know, I have two, two children, two little girls, and uh, I owe it to them to, to and, and I think the families feel that as well, that we owe it to the future and the present uh, of Canada to, to, to remind everyone that uh, the scourge of terrorism is out there. The, uh, and we have to protect against it. You wrote something interesting. I think um, it was for the Ontario Bar Association maybe about 10 years ago now, Why I Went to Law School, I think it was called. I was looking at it earlier. And you talked about it because so much of, of, of obviously, of the official uh, reaction to, to that day and the investigations, a lot of it fell apart. A lot of it was very disappointing. But amid that, there were people in positions of authority who who treated you in a way that prompted you not to to rage against a system, but to try to improve it. And that's a really interesting reaction. Well, you know, as discussed, you know, I was 12 and, 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 and months, years after trying to come to understand why was, why was my mother dead? Why were these other 320 individuals as well as, and I'm glad you mentioned that the, uh, baggage handlers in Norwegian airport. Why were they killed? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't follow Indian politics. Uh, my mum my certainly didn't. Uh, 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 why was she dead? And, and obviously, I, I can't say obviously, but I had a little bit of anger. Did I, be, you know, was I on a path towards becoming a punk kid? I think uh, my dad would probably say so, but um, I had a few key people in, in, in my community 
uh, a couple of police officers, in fact, who didn't have an explanation for any of that, but uh, they kept me on a, on a good path. Uh, 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 they gave me first, second, third chances uh, when I did something stupid, uh, and that's how I would describe it. And, and it also taught me and instilled in me that uh, if I was so upset um, and I wanted to honor my mom and all the other victims, then uh, don't just don't just argue against the system that we have, but become part of it. Uh, uh, influence it where you can um, try to make it better, try to help bring understanding uh, uh, to people, whether it's on victims' issues uh, 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 and the rights of victims and the needs and the trauma of victims, uh, but what also can be improved within our, whether it's our justice system and investigation systems. And, and, and that's the path that I went upon. I, 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 I took that anger. And uh, because of those people who guided me, I, I tried to channel it uh, uh, into to work that I could do to make the system better. And ultimately, that led to a decision to, to become a lawyer and then uh, followed by uh, what kind of lawyer, becoming a prosecutor, uh, uh, working side by side with uh, investigators uh, to, 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 to my career today, working with uh, police agencies. It can't always have been easy. To, I mean, one, some might want to just run away from other, from, from sort of, how do you put it? Some would want to, want to run away from, from the pain or, or just other trauma and sort of try to do something, you know, work in a library or something where it was just all, but, but uh, you, you worked your way through it year after year and succeeded and, and did much other things on the side too. Uh, what's kept you going all this time and, and, and how much gratification or how much satisfaction has it brought you over the years? You know, I, I, I think ultimately what it came down to is uh, whether we're talking about the RCMP or the government of Canada or the justice system of these institutions, ultimately it was individual human beings that uh, provided me that motivation. Um, I ended up meeting a number of the police investigators, and, uh, and I didn't see them as the RCMP. I saw them as individual caring human beings. And, and, and I got to know them. And then when I became a prosecutor, working with police officers and, and Crown and, and even defense lawyers across, I saw them as individual human beings. And that provided me that motivation that uh, uh, I learned as much as they are these big institutions, you know, the criminal justice system, it is composed of, of caring, compassionate human beings. And I was lucky, I would say, to meet many today, to work with many. And, 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 and that had a positive impact on me. Were there challenges along the way? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, little by little, I saw gains when I could sensitize uh, or really bring a deep grasp of understanding of, for example, of trauma uh, 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 to, 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 to lawyers, to judges, to police officials. Uh, and that brings me a sense of, of satisfaction and a sense of hope. And uh, I continue with that. It's that hope. I, I don't know how many of us can survive without having some hope to look forward to in the future. And I had that hope and many a time and it's still currently today uh, uh, that hope was satisfied and it just spurs me on even more. And that I would also say is the uh, upbringing I had of my father. He, he, he provided me that guidance, that mentorship. Uh, 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 you know, I, I don't like using the words as a hero, but he's certainly someone that I admire uh, to, to provide that hope and foster that hope for, for Canadians. Yeah, there, there's, uh, there's, uh, I, I, I guess the word for your dad. No, there's a nobility about your dad. Absolutely, I think I mentioned it. It's, it's, it's uh, for truth and justice. It's not for 
Uh, it's for honoring our loved ones. It's it's not for any type of gain. He hasn't received any awards. In fact, you know, he he probably wasn't involved uh, uh, in my teen years in my life as much as I would say he probably wanted to be because he had his full-time job uh, as a scientist. He had his job to raise his children, my brother and I, but he also had this job that he this 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 obligation that he felt, this moral responsibility to to seek justice on behalf of the families. Um, and he's done it admirably uh, uh, with, a, there again, many peaks and valleys throughout his life. Uh, uh, and and I, I grew up with that type of guidance. So, Sheila, when we look ahead now, uh, and I've, I asked you this a little bit earlier, but you've talked about, I think at one point I was reading um, uh, something that you had written or something you'd said talking about how we've come a long way. You feel like that there is a, a change in the way this country has viewed that day, but that there's a lot more work to be done. And uh, what would you like to see done? Well, I think um, I think unfortunately there are still a number of Canadians who 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 don't have uh, uh, this tragedy embedded in them, or not that it needs to be embedded, Ben, but uh, it certainly needs to be taught as part of our history in Canada. And there again, the purpose of that is not only to remember my mom and all the other victims, uh, and as you've mentioned, there were eighty-six children at the age of twelve. Were, were were killed, were murdered in this tragedy. But it, it's it, it's to remind us to be to be vigilant today. We have to be vigilant against uh, the threats of terrorism, the, the hatred that comes along with it. Um, uh, you know, otherwise, I fear we we as a country, we as Canadians, will be we victimized again, and we need to protect against that. And and that's what I I, I think needs uh, is a part of what needs to happen today and and in the future is reminding those Canadians that. Uh, 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 terrorism could strike anywhere. It, it wasn't just the families, Ben, that were the direct families that I would say were impacted by, uh, uh, by this tragedy. I met a number of the, uh, over the years, the, uh, for example, the nurses who worked at Cork Regional Hospital, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 some of the civilians, there were a number of civilians who, merchant sailors who, who, who took part in the recovery mission to, to, to recover bodies from the Atlantic Ocean that day. And the trauma and the PTSD, uh, uh, the pain that they still suffer from, they were victimized as well. And, and, and I dare say, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure not all families will agree with this, but I know a number of who will. But I've met a number of the RCMP officers who lived and breathed this case for 20 years, 20 plus years, and have retired. And this is a case that they still live with all those years later as well. Uh, 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 because they weren't able to bring justice uh, for the victims and seek and, and get accountability against the accused. And so they live with this night, so they were victimized by, by the strategy as well. So there are a whole number of people who, who, who are impacted by terrorism, which is why it's defined as something different in our criminal code than just plain murder, because of the impacts that it has to, to, to whole communities, to our institutions, to our, our, our democratic nation, our country. Um, and, and, and that's why I think it's so important to remember. You've done a lot of, um, you still do a lot of work that you're very proud of. Uh, tell me a bit about some of the things that you've, uh, the Kanishka Fund's an interesting one. I might be mispronouncing that, but I remember that was the name of the plane. That was the name of, of 182, that one, that, that particular jetliner. And there was a fund set up under that name that you've been involved with. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Justice May, one of the submissions, I wasn't counsel for the families at the inquiry. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we had external counsel. But one of the uh, submissions that uh, I wrote with another 
friends and colleagues uh, on behalf of the families to the inquiry to Justice Major was that uh, we knew that there was going to be some money set aside for the families as, as what's called an ex-gratia payment. Canada's done that uh, with the, the Japanese Canadians who were interned during uh, World War II, for example. Uh, 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 and, and so we knew there was some money going to be set aside, but I sat back and talking to many other families uh, was of the opinion that you could give my brother and I, our family, 50 or 75,000, you know, 25, 26 years later, it's not really going to do much. It's certainly not going to, to have an impact in terms of honoring the victims. Uh, it would maybe certainly would right some wrongs, and, and there were some families in Egypt, but I certainly didn't feel that. So we submitted to the, to the government that take $10 million that you were going to give to the victims' families. Instead, this inquiry, uh, 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 much of it was focused on not only what were the problems of the past, but what are the problems today of cooperation between intelligence agencies, police agencies, and government operations. Take that money and put it into a, a research program to fund grants that can help improve our criminal justice system as it applies to, 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 to terrorism-type cases, prosecutions, investigations, and so forth. Ultimately, Justice Major adopted that recommendation. And then uh, Prime Minister at the time adopted that recommendation, and, and that's what he did. And they created uh, uh, what's called the uh, Kanishka Project, which was named after the uh, plane that our loved ones were killed upon. And and uh, over the course of five to six years, it uh, it uh, ran a, the government ran a research program of which I was asked to co-chair in a voluntary capacity, collecting no salary or or anything, but uh, to select. Uh, 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 research uh, 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 projects that could help improve our justice system and our capability and capacities to deal with uh, uh, all facets of terrorism within Canada. And so I'm very proud of that because that is a way to to honor honor my mom and all the other victims that uh, uh, we had a voice in, in creating a program like that. Uh, and there were, I'm sure, if you were able to talk to some of the police agencies that were involved in, in they would tell you that. Yes, some practical research, uh, applied research came out of that to the Kanishka project that has assisted in the work that our law enforcement agencies do across this country today. Well, Sushil uh, Gupta, thank you so much for your time. We'll be thinking of you and, and your family, of course. And you have kids now. I don't, I don't know how you bring this up with them each and every year to explain what this day means to you, but uh, we'll be thinking of you on the 23rd. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's a rigged deal here. We have a rigged country. We have a country that's corrupt. We have a country that's got no borders. We have a country that's got nothing but problems. We're a nation in decline, and then they do this stuff. Well, you'll recognize that voice, won't you? That was uh, the former president, Donald Trump. He happened to be at a Cuban restaurant, a Cuban restaurant that I actually went to when I was in Miami about six months ago. So when I looked at it on social media, I thought, he's standing right beside the table that we sat at, more or less, well, around the corner. But there he was at a restaurant called Versailles in Miami where he provided that uh, familiar clip. Um, And that was just after his historic arraignment at a courthouse in Miami earlier. He held a rally this evening after returning to New Jersey where he essentially repeated exactly the same thing. You don't have to hear it again. He encapsulated it there in about 11 seconds. He today pleaded not guilty as expected to 37, 37 federal criminal charges. He's accused of taking classified documents documents for the White House and improperly storing them in his home at Mar-a-Lago, all over his home, if you've seen the pictures, including in the bathroom, as well as 
obstructing after efforts to retrieve them. Former federal prosecutor David Weinstein explains what happens next. I expect that within the next several days, perhaps into next week, Judge Cannon will issue what's called a trial order and pretrial deadlines. That will be the document that sets the trial within the speedy trial time period, which is 75 days. And Weinstein says far from being treated poorly, as Trump may suggest, he actually got special treatment today with no bond and the ability to travel. Any other defendant who had been charged with violating an act for the retention of highly classified defense military secrets would not be allowed to travel outside the United States, would have to surrender their passport and would have to sign off on the signature bond. Now, if you've been watching the American networks today, they've been parsing this back and forth. So we don't need to tread over all that territory once again about what exactly is going to happen in this case. I think what's interesting from this side of the border as we peer over the border nervously at what's going to happen in 2024 is what does this mean for Canada? Uh, it won't mean much in the short term, but it appears as if Donald Trump has sort of moved ahead once again to be the sort of undisputed front runner uh, for the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidential election. Uh, so how should we be viewing this? To help us with that is Paul Quirk. He's the Paul Lynn Chair in U.S. Politics and Representation at the University of British Columbia. Paul, welcome back. Thanks. Thank you, Ben. This has been, I mean, it's it, it's almost hard. If you think back to 25 years ago, it's almost hard to imagine this stuff. But there it was, you know, we're all watching TV. There's people following it like the OJ, the OJ white Bronco as, as he sort of his convoy came to the courthouse. Uh, but all of it seems to have put Donald Trump exactly where he loves to be. And that is at the center of attention. The only thing I disagree with there is your word almost hard to believe. <laughs> yes. It's uh, it's a, uh, it was a great deal that has happened in American politics for the last seven years would have been strictly unimaginable um, uh, a generation earlier. When we look at what's, um, I mean, I guess just quickly on the court case itself, I mean, it, it, it's hard to know what's going to happen, but it seems like it's not going to happen quickly. So we're going to have this whole primary um, go on while all this is hanging over one of the the, the front runner. That is uh, correct. Uh, the uh, 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 official who was, uh, or the expert who was uh, quoted about the uh, pre-trial uh, phases uh, mentioned a 70-day uh, deadline for speedy trial, and that's kind of a nominal thing. That is not going to end up being the time when the trial occurs. There will always be motions to delay, and they will be accepted. And uh, we don't know really when the trial will be, but it would be unlikely to be um, s s much sooner than almost a year. And uh, you're, you're exactly correct. The, this will probably be during the primary elections that the trial begins. It may not necessarily be a super long trial. I think the uh, prosecutors expect a couple of weeks. But the, the prospects are, um, if you just look at what the situation is now, uh, it, it is uh, quite likely that by next, by this time next year, Donald Trump will have won a large majority of the delegates to the uh, to the convention through the primaries. The primaries will be over. He may well be convicted, or at least uh, still in the midst of criminal trials, and the. Um, uh, Republican National Convention will be coming up in July, 
And uh, there's nothing very clear about what what would happen if he would uh, win election to the presidency and yet be convicted and his appeals exhausted for these crimes. So it, it uh, we're headed toward uh, really bizarre uh, circumstances. Indeed. I was just reading today that it was 50 years ago now that the Senate Committee on Watergate began. And it felt like, I mean, my my dad used to talk about Watergate and, you know, Woodward and Bernstein. And it feels like such a simple time now. It feels like a, such a simpler time. Here we are in this in this almost, you know, this, this mess now. Um, when you look at what kind of impact it's had on the primary race, it, it feels like it's allowed Donald Trump to very much position himself as sort of, the, and I hate to use this word, but the spiritual leader of the Republican Party. He sort of positioned himself as as the martyr, you know, and, and it's, it's a strange political time that we live in where being uh, accused of having, you know, essentially under the Espionage Act somehow makes you a more credible candidate in the eyes of some. Yeah, um, I don't know whether he would have been any any weaker without these uh, indictments. You know, he's also been indicted uh, in New York State on uh, charges of falsification of records uh, connected with uh, uh, various other uh, related felonies. Uh, uh, the important thing to understand about the uh, about his situation in the Republican nomination contest is that. A very large part of the Republican electorate, the voter, uh, the voting uh, Republicans, uh, are essentially a personality cult that um, uh, kind of worships Trump and accepts whatever he says on whatever subject. Uh, so he has been a, a dominant figure, uh, and and he has there is there is a sufficiently large group of these uh, Republican voters who are devoted to him and. Uh, thoroughly accepting of uh, whatever he says, that other Republican officials have been afraid to criticize him and, and notably have refrained from it. So there are lots of Republican, former Republican and former Republican commentators and intellectuals and former of, uh, elected officials who are highly critical of Trump, but very, very few who hold elective office now. Yeah. I mean, I was watching John Bolton today, who's not exactly, you know, the world's <laughs> the world's nicest guy. Uh, but he was saying something interesting about all these ideas that somehow this is, you know, this is a witch hunt and so on. That, you know, if you support the rule of law as the Republican Party, as the GOP had traditionally, um, why would you let, why would you then, you know, if you claim that Hillary should have been, you know, Clinton should have been convicted over emails and that the Biden family are corrupt and all that nonsense, uh, why wouldn't you convict Trump? <laughs> why would you convict everybody? Not let everyone, like, not, you know, not, not are, use it as an argument that one person should walk free, but I guess that's all that's all kind of beside the point. I guess Ron DeSantis, I mean, he this has put him in a situation, I mean, he's hardly the most impressive person to begin with in terms of his ability to think on his feet, but this seems to have really cornered him. Like, he doesn't really know what to do with this one now, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, his, his, uh, his rhetoric has been kind of uh, reduced to a couple of phrases that he repeats over and over again about, you know, witch hunt and, uh, you know, no borders and things like that. And he uh, makes uh, wildly inconsistent defenses of his own conduct, um, you know, claiming sometimes that he, uh, he was allowed to take whatever he wanted to take uh, or that he could declassify documents 
just by thinking about them. Uh, and uh, you know, his uh, his rhetoric is it's really quite remarkable that anybody finds him persuasive at this point. Paul, when you look at what independents think, and it was essentially the independents who won Joe Biden the last election, they don't seem too impressed with uh, no. with all this with all this stuff. No, uh, if you just look at uh, there's some polling now about the uh, about this latest indictment, and uh, Republicans are are about seventy uh, percent against the uh, uh, rejecting the in- indictment. That is, they. Uh, are claiming that it is uh, political, um, but about 80% of every, of everybody else uh, uh, is endorsing the indictment. That means almost all Democrats, and it means a majority of uh, independents. Now, there are not very many people who call themselves independents, but uh, the, the way the way the the political landscape looks for the general election when you start looking at the competition between Democrats. And Republicans, instead of among Republicans, uh, the the two parties are quite evenly balanced, and the the respective voters of the of the two parties are quite consistent in sticking with their with their candidate, not too likely to defect. Uh, and there are not very many uh, independents, but they're leaning toward uh, Democrats now, and they have done the same thing in in 2022. Uh, except for the uh, for the uh, unusual circumstances of the midterm in 2020 and 2018, so uh, uh, Trump has been leading the Republicans to defeat uh, consistently for several years, and nothing uh, looks like it's getting better for his appeal to to independent voters. Yeah, I mean, someone was pointing out today that he's been indicted now more often than he's been elected, which is a, which is an interesting thing. Well, it's uh, his, he's been impeached more often than he's been elected, and also. impeached as well. That's right. I forgot to. It's his seventy seventh birthday tomorrow. I realized they were singing "Happy Birthday" to him today. So here we are, heading towards the twenty twenty four election, and when we may well have a seventy eight year old Donald Trump and an eighty one year old Joe Biden. Uh, they fought this election before. I guess if you're Canadian, staring across the border. I mean, this is a fraught time. It's a fraught time in Canada, but it's a especially fraught time in America. And looking at that Republican uh, field of candidates can't help but make anyone can't help anyone feel uh, any easier. And and Biden, I mean, he's had, I guess, I mean, he's he's had some success, but it doesn't seem to be showing up in the polls. Yeah, that's that's uh, correct. I have a hunch um, that uh, some of the uh, negative attitude. Toward Biden, that is the num- um, that is among the people who uh, say that they disapprove of him, um, are a significant number of uh, liberals who think he hasn't done enough, right? Uh, because there has been quite a bit of criticism from the left uh, for that, um, you know, on the, on those grounds. And what's important about them is that when it comes time to pull the pull the lever in an election. Uh, they'll vote for the for the Democrat or for, you know for Biden, not for Trump. So I I believe that the uh, his approval ratings, which are really in, in the low 40s, really quite low for a president uh, to have a good prospect for re-election historically. Uh, I think they are a little bit less grim than that looks because of these uh, people who are critical of him from the left. 
What might a second Donald Trump term look like? I mean, he was writing things today on his Truth Social Media platform about, you know, essentially, essentially going after everybody. I mean, you know, the the, the a second term for him would be a term of vast revenge and and you know, score settling. At least that's what he's saying he's going to do. I have no reason not to believe him. I think that a second uh, Trump um, term would be a a. a a kind of full-time, obviously intense crisis of American democracy, because he would be trying to uh, clear out the civil service of people who were at all independent of him, and you know replace them replace them with loyalists. He would be using um, criminal uh, processes to try to punish enemies, you know, throwing Democrats in jail. And they would be working on preparing to uh, overturn the results of future elections. And I think he would not plan on leaving office peacefully after another term. So I, I think I think a, a second Trump, uh, you know, I mean, the first uh, Trump uh, presidency was, uh, administration was uh, quite a chaotic scene. But I don't think it compares to what would you would have in a second one. Well, I mean, I, I guess we, there, are, there are many, many more months to go. I, I suppose we'll all be – sadly, I, I just feel like – sadly, we all have to pay attention to this because I, mean, I suppose we can turn our heads away. But, <laughs> yeah, anyway, we'll see what happens with it. Paul Quirk, thanks so much for your, for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Enjoy it. I think it's a rigged deal here. We have a rigged country. We have a country that's corrupt. We have a country that's got no borders. We have a country that's got nothing but problems. We're a nation in decline. And then they do this stuff. Well, you'll recognize that voice, won't you? That was uh, the former president, Donald Trump. He happened to be at a Cuban restaurant, a Cuban restaurant that I actually went to when I was in Miami about six months ago. So when I looked at it on social media, I thought, he's standing right beside the table that we sat at, more or less, well, around the corner. But there he was at a restaurant called Versailles in Miami where he provided that uh, familiar clip. Um, And that was just after his historic arraignment at a courthouse in Miami earlier. He held a rally this evening after returning to New Jersey where he essentially repeated exactly the same thing. You don't have to hear it again. He encapsulated it there in about 11 seconds. He today pleaded not guilty as expected to 37, 37 federal criminal charges. He's accused of taking classified documents documents for the White House and improperly storing them in his home at Mar-a-Lago, all over his home, if you've seen the pictures, including in the bathroom, as well as obstructing efforts to retrieve them. Former federal prosecutor David Weinstein explains what happens next. I expect that within the next several days, perhaps into next week, Judge Cannon will issue what's called a trial order and pretrial deadlines. That will be the document that sets the trial within the speedy trial time period, which is 75 days. And Weinstein says, far from being treated poorly, as Trump may suggest, he actually got special treatment today with no bond and the ability to travel. Any other defendant who had been charged with violating an act for the retention of highly classified defense military secrets would not be allowed to travel outside the United States, would have to surrender their passport, and would have to sign off on the signature bond. 
Now, if you've been watching the American networks today, they've been parsing this back and forth. So we don't need to tread over all that territory once again about what exactly is going to happen in this case. I think what's interesting from this side of the border as we peer over the border nervously at what's going to happen in 2024 is what does this mean for Canada? Uh, it won't mean much in the short term, but it appears as if Donald Trump has sort of moved ahead once again to be the sort of undisputed front runner uh, for the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidential election. Uh, so how should we be viewing this? To help us with that is Paul Quirk. He's the Paul Lynn Chair in U.S. Politics Representation at the University of British Columbia. Paul, welcome back. Thanks. Thank you, Ben. This has been, I mean, it's it, it's almost hard. If you think back to 25 years ago, it's almost hard to imagine this stuff. But there it was, you know, we we're all watching TV. There's people following it like the OJ, the OJ white Bronco as, as he sort of his convoy came to the courthouse. Uh, but all of it seems to have put Donald Trump exactly where he loves to be. And that is at the center of attention. The only thing I disagree with there is your word almost hard to believe. <laughs> yes. It's uh, it's a. Uh, it was a great deal that has happened in American politics for the last seven years would have been strictly unimaginable um, uh, a generation earlier. When we look at what's, um, I mean, I guess just quickly on the court case itself, I mean, it's hard to know what's going to happen, but it seems like it's not going to happen quickly. So we're going to have this whole primary um, go on while all this is hanging over one of the the, the frontrunner. That is uh, correct. Uh, the uh, 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 official who was, uh, or the expert who was uh, quoted about the uh, uh, pre-trial uh, phases uh, mentioned a 70-day uh, deadline for speedy trial, and that's kind of a nominal thing. That is not going to end up being the time when the trial occurs. There will always be motions to delay, and they will be accepted. And uh, we don't know really when the trial will be, but it would be unlikely to be um, much sooner than almost a year. And uh, you're you're exactly correct. This will probably be during the primary elections that the trial begins. may not necessarily be a super long trial. I think the uh, prosecutors expect a couple of weeks. But the the prospects are, uh, if you just look at what the situation is now, uh, it, it is uh, quite likely that by next, by this time next year, Donald Trump will have won a large majority of the delegates to the uh, to the convention through the primaries. The primaries will be over. He may well be convicted, or at least uh, still in the midst of criminal trials, and the. Um, uh, Republican National Convention will be coming up in July, and uh, there's nothing very clear about what what would happen if he would uh, win election to the presidency and yet be convicted and his appeals exhausted for these crimes. So it, it uh, we're headed toward uh, really bizarre uh, circumstances. Indeed. I was just reading today that it was 50 years ago now that the Senate Committee on Watergate began. And it felt like, I mean, my my dad used to talk about Watergate and, you know, Woodward and Bernstein. And it feels like such a simple time now. It feels like a, such a simpler time. And here we are in this in this almost, you know, this, this mess now. Um, 
when you look at what kind of impact it's had on the primary race, it, it feels like it's allowed Donald Trump to very much position himself as sort of, the, and I hate to use this word, but the spiritual leader of the Republican Party. He sort of positioned himself as as the martyr, you know, and, and it's, it's a strange political time that we live in where being uh, accused of having, you know, essentially under the Espionage Act somehow makes you a more credible candidate in the eyes of some. Yeah, um, I don't know whether he would have been any any weaker without these uh, indictments. You know, he's also been indicted uh, in New York State on uh, charges of falsification of records uh, connected with uh, uh, various other uh, related felonies. Uh, uh, the important thing to understand about the uh, about his situation in the Republican nomination contest is that. A very large part of the Republican electorate, the voter, uh, the voting uh, Republicans, uh, are essentially a personality cult that um, uh, kind of worships Trump and accepts whatever he says on whatever subject. Uh, so he has been a, a dominant figure, uh, and and he has there is there is a sufficiently large group of these uh, Republican voters who are devoted to him and thoroughly accepting of uh, whatever he says, that other Republican officials have been afraid to criticize him and, and notably have refrained from it. So there are lots of Republican, former Republican and former Republican commentators and intellectuals and former of, uh, elected officials who are highly critical of Trump, but very, very few who hold elective office now. Yeah. I mean, I was watching John Bolton today, who's not exactly, you know, the world's <laughs> the world's nicest guy. Uh, but he was saying something interesting about all these ideas that somehow this is, you know, this is a witch hunt and so on. That, you know, if you support the rule of law as the Republican Party, as the GOP had traditionally, um, why would you let, why would you then, you know, if you claim that Hillary should have been, you know, Clinton should have been convicted over emails and that the Biden family are corrupt and all that nonsense, uh, why wouldn't you convict Trump? <laughs> why would you convict everybody? Not let everyone, like, not, you know, not, not use it as an argument that one person should walk free, but I guess that's all that's all kind of beside the point. I guess Ron DeSantis, I mean, he this has put him in a situation, I mean, he's hardly the most impressive person to begin with in terms of his ability to think on his feet, but this seems to have really cornered him. Like, he doesn't really know what to do with this one now, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, his, his, uh, his rhetoric has been kind of uh, reduced to a couple of phrases that he repeats over and over again about, you know, witch hunt and, uh, you know, no borders and things like that. And he uh, makes uh, wildly inconsistent defenses of his own conduct, um, you know, claiming sometimes that he, uh, he was allowed to take whatever he wanted to take uh, or that he could declassify documents just by thinking about them uh, and uh you know his uh, his rhetoric is it's really quite remarkable that anybody finds him persuasive at this point Paul, when you look at what independents think, and it was essentially the independents who won Joe Biden the last election, they don't seem too impressed with uh, no. with all this with all this stuff no uh, if you just look at uh, there's some polling now about the uh, about this latest indictment. And uh, Republicans are are about seventy uh, percent uh, against the uh, uh, rejecting the in indictment. That is, they uh, are claiming that it is uh, 
political. Um, but about 80% of, every, of everybody else uh, uh, is endorsing the indictment. That means almost all Democrats, and it means a majority of uh, independents. Now, there are not very many people who call themselves independents. But uh, the, the way, the, way the, the political landscape looks for the general election, when you start looking at the competition between Democrats and Republicans instead of among Republicans, uh, the, the two parties are quite evenly balanced, and the, the respective voters of the, of the two parties are quite consistent in sticking with their, with their candidate, not too likely to defect. Uh, and there are not very many uh, independents, but they're leaning toward uh, Democrats now. And they have done the same thing in, in 2022, uh, except for the uh, for the uh, unusual circumstances of the midterm in 2020 and 2018. So uh, uh, Trump, Trump has been leading the Republicans to defeat uh, consistently for several years, and nothing uh, looks like it's getting better for his appeal to to independent voters. Yeah. I mean, someone was pointing out today that he's been indicted now more often than he's been elected, which is a, which is an interesting thing. Well, that, it's uh, his, he's been impeached more often than he's been elected. And also. impeached as well. That's right. I forgot. To, it's his 77th birthday tomorrow. I realized they were singing happy birthday to him today. So here we are heading towards the uh, 2024 uh, election. And when we may well have a 78-year-old Donald Trump and an 81-year-old Joe Biden. Uh, they fought this election before. I guess if you're Canadian staring across the border, I mean, this is a fraught time. It's a fraught time in Canada, but it's a especially fraught time in America. And looking at that Republican uh, field of candidates can't help but make anyone, can't help anyone feel uh, any easier. And and Biden, I mean, he's had, I guess, I mean, he's he's had some success, but it doesn't seem to be showing up in the polls. Yeah, that's that's uh, correct. I have a hunch um, that uh, some of the uh, negative attitude toward Biden—that is the num- um, that is among the people who uh, say that they disapprove of him—are um, a significant number of uh, liberals who think he hasn't done enough, right? Uh, because there has been quite a bit of criticism from the left uh, for that. Um, you know, on, the, on those grounds. And what's important about them is that when it comes time to pull the, pull the lever in an election, uh, they'll vote for the, for the Democrat or, for, you know, for Biden, not for Trump. So I, I believe that the, uh, his approval ratings, which are really in, in the low 40s, really quite low for a president uh, to have a good prospect for re-election historically, I think they are a little bit less grim than that looks because of these uh, people who are critical of him from the left. What might a second Donald Trump term look like? I mean, he was writing things today on his Truth Social Media platform about, you know, essentially, essentially going after everybody. I mean, you know, the the, the a second term for him would be a term of vast revenge and and you know, score settling. At least that's what he's saying he's going to do. I have no reason not to believe him. I think that a second uh, Trump um, term would be a, 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 a kind of full-time, obviously intense crisis of American democracy, because he would be trying to uh, clear out the civil service of people who were at all independent of him 
and you know replace them replace them with loyalists you would be using um criminal uh, processes to try to punish enemies you know throwing democrats in jail and they would be working on preparing to uh overturn the results of future elections and i think he would not plan on leaving office peacefully after another term so i i think uh, i think a uh, a second trump uh, you know i mean the first uh, trump uh presidency what uh, administration was uh, quite a chaotic scene but i don't think yeah. it compares to what would you would have in a second one well i mean i i guess we there are, there are many many more months to go i i suppose we'll all be sadly i i just feel like it, sadly we all have to pay attention to this because i, mean, I suppose we can turn our heads away but <laughs> yeah anyway we'll see what happens with it paul quirk thanks so much for your for your time tonight Thank you, Ben. Enjoy it.